The cross behind us doesn't have anybody on it. Praise God. He is a living God who loves us. Before I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, I'd like you to take your Bibles and open to the book of John, chapter 1. And may we all stand for the reading of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world or and, through, and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God bless the reading of His Word. Our Father... We are grateful that you chose us. And Lord, we ask and pray that uh, today um, our dear brother would just continue to expose us to this light in a deeper way. That through your spirit, Father, you would uh, not only speak, but um, that we would have a heart and a mind open to the truth that uh, we are exposed to. We thank you for your word in that uh, each and every moment, each and every day, we have the freedom and the opportunity in which to open it and watch how your spirit teaches us and reveal yourself through it to us. We thank you for our community, our church, our family. And Lord, I just pray this day that 
the hearer and the learner would be blessed by the teaching of your word. In your precious name, we pray these things. Amen. I believe in... That's working. I do that just to panic the sound person, so... I feel like I should uh, introduce myself only because a few weeks ago, when we were inviting new people into the church, uh, I learned their names, and they said, and who are you? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm Mike Jones. And then they said, well, how long have you been coming to the church? <laughs> so um, I'm the old man <laughs> that got here on the, um, I just got off the boat with Noah, and we came here. I have the privilege of serving here as a pastor emeritus, and it's a delight to sit under our pastor, Pastor Aaron, and his leadership. I just enjoy that every week, and it's, uh, or, or others, even whether it's uh, some of the elders, other pastoral staff. It's a delight to know that when we come here, we're going to focus on the Word of God. This is our 19th message on the attributes of God. And we started this out uh, with the thoughts from our pastor who said that God is not like us, and certainly we've discovered that. He's not like us. He's far greater than us. Uh, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms so that we're comfortable with Him, when in reality we ought to be, in the great theological term, we ought to be blown away by Him. And we can really come to know God through His Word. That's the primary way that He makes Himself known to us. Not the only way, but it's the primary way. The end objective of the study was to understand more about God is to demonstrate in our lives humility, that we know such a God, and awe and worship. And I just have to say that Sunday after Sunday, whether last Sunday we were talking about the jealousy of God or any of the subjects, and we've talked about a number of those things, the faithfulness of God, the, the, the God is all-powerful, that He's everywhere. Uh, we've talked about those things, and each time I said, oh, that's our God. That's our God. That's our God. And worship Him, awestruck by Him over and over again. This is my third message in this series, and I preached... Uh, first message is on the immensity of God. The second one was on the transcendence of God. And today we talk about the imminence of God. It's interesting that in each one of those messages, the uh, imminency of God came across in every one of them. And it was impossible to know about God's, in the sense of immensity, that He's beyond measurement, and the transcendence, that He's beyond anything we know or experience, that that can frighten us if we didn't understand the, the imminency of God, that He desires to have a close daily walk with us in our journey. That's His desire. I'm uh, humbled by that and blessed in the process. So I want to try to defer, d define the term, the... Uh, the thought of the imminency of God, but also the transcendence of God. And if we can understand those two and see them in relationship to each other, then we're born out of that is the 
intimacy of God. When I spoke about the transcendence of God, I used as an illustration uh, who became a friend to me, Dr. Kerr. Dr. Kerr was a man who was part of our congregation for a number of years. He was also recognized nationally and internationally. He had two earned doctorates. He had two honorary doctorates given to him. He was instrumental in starting two schools. He was published. I said then that um, he'd forgotten more than I've known. And he was just a brilliant man. He was known throughout all of South Korea. And I told you then how blessed I was that he would invite me into participating in the work with him. And so because of that, I've been, I've been to a number of countries and shared with uh, men who have been involved with the ministry and training them up in that process. But there's a, and, and I then made the association that far beyond Dr. Kerr, and I appreciated the invitation, is God himself who invites us into that participation with him in his work and what he's doing. He's still doing that. We heard that from Mario this morning. That's what God is doing in that uh, process of everything that he's doing. He's always done it in association and with uh, his glory in mind and mankind to be involved with him in that process. I thought further about Dr. Kerr in relationship to the imminency of God, which means God is knowable, he's available, we can grasp him, and that's why we read the scripture that then the word became flesh, speaking of Christ, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. We learn about his grace, we learn about his truth, we learn about him life and how he can live that life with us. Well, I thought about then further using the illustration of Dr. Kerr that not only did he, was he an amazing man and accomplished a lot, but what I loved about him, and I didn't realize it until we were progressing further, that he was just doing life with me. He let me get into his life. He told me about being raised in, a, in Ireland above a tavern and about the, the wickedness of his parents and not knowing God, just not knowing God. He, he told me about how he got saved by a street evangelist, uh, John McIntyre. If you don't know anything about John McIntyre, it's rather interesting. He was rather an unusual man. He told me about uh, when he was in college that he had fallen in love with this woman. And then uh, when he got called to the ministry, he spoke to this woman and said, are you willing to go with me in that process? And she said, I am not. I'm not called to do that. And so he broke up with her immediately, abruptly, in fact. No more words with her. He just said, I'm done. And, um, and he told me about that. And I said, well, did you ever have any other conversation with her to give her some sense of understanding? He said, I was in the room with her a number of years later. I'd already met who became Mrs. Kerr. We'd been married for a number of years, and there she was. And I said, and what did you say to her? I didn't say anything to her. I said, you're kidding me. He said, and I regret it to this moment that I didn't speak to her. So those are the kind of stories that we talk. We laughed together. We prayed together. I remember when we were in Korea, 
that he was worried about whether the students were going to pay and whether we were going to be able to do whatever and all it was. And I listened to that and I said, Dr. Kerr, we need to take a break here for a moment. He said, uh, what for? I said, I've got to go out and get a gun. What for? He says, I said, to do us in. Life's not worth living. He said, hey, hey, it's not that bad. So, so those are the kinds of things. I, um, I, uh, I wept with him. I prayed with him. I planned with him. I thought with him. I lived with him. So much so that even in the latter part of his life, when he became very sick and he was going to the doctor, a specialist, he said, will you go with me? Some of his family members were going as well, but he included me into that, into the family. I was in that room when the doctor says that you have an incurable cancer. There's nothing we can do about that. There's no resolution, he said. Uh, and, but he said, what we do here is we treat cancer, and I'm willing to do that. And then the, the, the doctor said, if you just allow me for a moment to take my doctor's hat off and speak to you as if you were my father. He said, I'm going to make your life miserable over the next few months. I'm not going to extend your life. I'm not going to cure this. You're going to die. And if I were you, I would go from here and just live life as fully as you can for whatever time God gives you. That's what he chose to do. I visited him a number of times when he was in his home here in Port Angeles. And now what I learned that, in fact, I was the last person that he spoke to on his earthly journey. And the words he spoke to me was, after I'd read some scripture and prayed with him, he said, I love you. That was it. No more words did he ever speak. Now, why am I saying all of that to you? I'm saying that Dr. Kerr gave me the greatest thing in life, which was an invitation into the depths of his life, of who he was and what he was experiencing. And we joked together and laughed together. He, he talked about the time when he was at a Presbyterian church, a very high, sophisticated church, and he was walking down the aisle, coming up. Normally, we always wore scuffs in the pulpit there in Korea, South Korea, and he, he had a size 13 foot, and they had a size eight and a half scuff. And he was walking down trying to keep his scuffs on, and all the steps in Korea are not calibrated, and he was looking up thinking, oh my goodness, that's the largest step I've ever seen to get up to the platform. Got up there, they'd already put a robe on him. He pulled the robe up and started to put his foot up on what he thought was the next step, and the man behind him coming down the aisle, he said, Dr. Kerr, that's the communion table. I could say many, many stories along that line. I was blessed to be able to do his service. I did his wife's, part of his wife's service as well. As, uh, as joyful and as meaningful as that experience was to me, it was only a model for what Jesus and the triune God wants to do for us. He wants to have an intimate, deep relationship with us. He wants to do life with us. It's not something we just do on Sunday, not something we do in a Bible study. It is a 24-7 process whereby we get to experience Him. That's what we want to talk about today, What the beauty of that, the richness of that. So let's begin. 
When we mean by what we mean by the um, transcendence of God, it means that He's exceeding unusual beyond. But when we talk about in terms of the eminence of God, we talk about being within the limits of possible experience or knowledge. That's what God wants us to understand. It's really interesting. There's a passage of Scripture that balances these two out in a marvelous way. It's in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. And I read it for you. It says, For thus saith the high and exalted one who lives forever. This is Isaiah talking about God. For thus says God, the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, separated, unusual, I dwell on high and holy place. Now, that's the transcendence of God. That's his beyondness. That's his unlike us. But then he goes on to say, I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's both of them right there in one verse, his transcendency and the imminency, that the fact that he wants to, de- to bring into us this dynamic relationship, this living relationship. I liked what one person said in terms of this about the balance that is here. God's imminence gives him awareness and compassion for our suffering and sin. God's transcendence gives him power to heal, to rescue, and redeem. Because he is beyond the limits of all we understand, we can reverse, he can reverse the fortunes of those who seem inevitably downtrodden. That's the beauty of the blend of these marvelous truths that are there. You know, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he is the God of all comfort. Part of that verse talks about his power, and the other part talks about his mercy. It would be one thing if God was merciful and felt pity for us, but could do nothing about it. That would be sad. Or if he's powerful and could do anything but has no mercy, he would never extend himself to us. But the blend is the richness of what we have in terms of the Lord. We believe that when we speak of God, we speak of a God who is concerned about the lives of people, working miracles, answering prayers, in so many ways intersecting His life with our lives. We as Christians believe that God is a personal God, meaning that He is able to develop a relationship with us. Now, that may be hard to grasp that the God of the universe that we speak of in such glorious terms wants to speak to you personally, wants to walk with you personally. And yet, that is the truth. And we'll say more about that as we progress. So we want to then uh, realize that the manifestation of the intimacy of God is best defined by the birth of Christ. And we said that, that it became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, we knew something about God. His birth and his life uh, was something experienced by the multitudes. 
They got to watch God in many, many different situations. They got to watch him as he met with his friends who were facing death, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' death. They got to watch Jesus when the woman was brought to him that was caught in adultery and her shame and sin and fear, and yet they saw how Jesus related to her. They got to see Jesus when he saw the multitudes and they were hungry and he decided to feed them and teach his disciples that, do you know that I'm more than enough as the baskets were left over as he did that? He knows what it is to be alone. He was there many times. No one in the world understood his task. Even the disciples there were with him. When they forbade, when Peter said, Lord, you can't go up to Jerusalem and suffer. He said, get behind me, Satan. You have your interest in the things of men, not the things of God. The most dynamic thing, the most gracious, loving thing that God would ever do in bringing redemption to mankind to his glory, he was addressing the means to accomplish that. And men around him lost that. They couldn't see that. God knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be falsely accused. He knows what it is to go through the very process of death. He knows what it is to give up his spirit. He knows what it is what it is to be betrayed, lied about. He knows what it is to see people mischaracterizing him in terms of what he is and what he can do and missing the message. Jesus knows about life, and we had the privilege of watching him in the Scriptures. That's why when Pastor Aaron told us that, we get to know God through the Word of God, and that's it. When you read the four accounts of uh, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, they're rich with life, relationship, intimacy, and that's what he desires in that process. There are, I want to just speak of four or three ways that intimacy can be experienced. But then I want to come back to that expression of walking with us. God's intimacy, that when we take of places that can, that can take place and how our understanding can be increased about his, his imminency, that he is near and understandable, uh, the Word of God is one of those avenues. It's in the Word of God that we read, such as in Jeremiah 23, Do I not uh, fill heaven and earth? God's speaking this. This is who I am. But then he goes on to say uh, that uh, speaking in personal terms, particularly to the nation of Israel, he says, I'm with you, Isaiah 41.10. My spirit remains in your midst, Haggai 2.5. The Lord your God is with you, Zephaniah 3.17. And they go on. The presence and the eminence of God go well beyond lip service. They are entirely throughout the canon. Everywhere in Scripture, we see that. In fact, in the 24th chapter of Luke, when the disciples didn't understand who Jesus was, he said he opened their minds to understand the the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that they were all about him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And that's what he was trying to say. So the Bible is a rich, wonderful tool given to us whereby we can understand who God is and his desire for a relationship with us. Secondly, I think we see, as I've already made reference to, that God's eminence is revealed in his son, John 1.14, that we just had read there. 
this man's Jesus, this man Jesus was born to demonstrate in flesh who God is. We see that characterized in so many of the things that I've already itemized for you. But I think we also see God's eminence, his availability, his presence, the fact that we can grasp hold of him and who he is. We see it in God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is another example of just how distinct and active and present God is among the people since His Spirit has been sent to dwell inside of us. Acts 2.38, we see that manifested. But we see by the Spirit that dwells within us, He, He teaches us, He helps us, He empowers us, He guides us, He comforts us, He cultivates us. He indwells us. That is, that he has in mind the the presence in our lives daily. To be filled with the Spirit, then, is to be directed by God in terms of how we're to live life. It has always been the desire of God from the very beginning to have this kind of working relationship with him. That's always been his desire. When we see, and I think we have to see the fun of this. We have to see the interaction. We have to see the joy of this, of the relationship with God and Adam and Eve. Particularly Adam initially, because God was busy creating. We see this clearly stated. And then he would bring his creation to Adam and to see what Adam would name it, what he would call it. And whatever Adam called it, that was it. I mean, can you see the fun and the interplay of that? You know, go, God is over here. I wonder what he'll call this. Boom. What do you think, Adam? Well, I think that's going to be called a giraffe. Good. I like that. A giraffe it is. And the interplay, it was just like fun. It's like kids playing together. And I don't mean to demean that, but I do think that. I think God created us for the very purpose of working with him and relating with him and having fun with him in life and doing life. And we're going to see that in its fullest expression when we finally get rid of all of this sin that's in this world and we get to be with him and to be known of him. And you see the picture in terms of that. Well, mankind spoiled all of that. And we know that. In the foolishness of mankind, he thought he could do life without God. He was deeply mistaken by that. Sin broke the relationship with God and God separated himself from man and man then set on the journey of trying to make life meaningful without God. It cannot be done. No matter what false gods we create, there is no completion of life, fulfillment of life, without God. It's impossible. Man has been very creative in the process of doing that, but uh, two weeks ago I was back um, in our son's church there And their pastor quoted a book that I had not heard of. It's called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Some of you may know that. But I was intrigued by one thing that he said there. Now, what he's expressing is, is that there is within every man the cry for eternity, the intimacy with God. There is that cry. Even though we don't know how to accomplish it, it is the cry. And this is what C.S. Lewis said when he was talking about the glory of God and how we're designed to be like God. He said, that desire that is within us is like the scent of a flower we have not found. 
It echoes there. It's, just, it's that scent. Or it's like the echo of, of, a, of a tune that we've never heard. Or a message from a land that we've never visited. You see what I'm saying by that? It's, it's, it's no matter what we may experience. If we experience some wonderful music, it's always less, left us with the desire to want more. Or as um, one song was sung many, many years ago, experiencing all of life. And then they said, this was the re- recurring phrase in it. Is that all there is to life? No matter what I've done, is that all there is to life? Life is designed to be in relationship with God on a habitual basis. In fact, when mankind had so blown it, and we even though in that separated condition know there ought to be more, we're powerless to restore the relationship. And God so desired to have a relationship with us that he brought about redemption. I was just sharing with Pastor Aaron this morning and thinking through this message. Atonement was not man's idea. Justification was not man's idea. Regeneration was not man's idea. These are not theological terms that we've come up with so that we can study and all the nuances of that. No, these are God words initiated by God, implemented by God, brought to its fullness in God. These are His words. Atonement means it was God's desire, knowing that sin separated us through atonement, His own personal sacrifice on the cross, shedding His own blood, that it would cover our sins. His idea. Why? Because He wanted to restore the relationship with us. He wanted to walk with us again. He wanted to play with us again. He wanted to enjoy us again. That's his creative purpose with us. He brought about this whole thing of justification where he could declare us through his own act as a judicial decree from the God of the universe. I declare you to be righteous, whole, free of sin, free of judgment. What a gracious gift, even giving us the promise that one day we'll be freed from the very presence of sin. That'll be play day when we get there. And then regeneration, and I just I read through all these uh, systematic theologies, and they are talking about the nuances of regeneration. Well, when does regeneration take place? Is, is, it, is it when I believe? Is it when I express faith? Is it when God says this and He declares it? When does it take place? My friends, I don't know where or when, but it must. And that's God's doing. And regeneration means I'm made forth into the likeness of God, into the relationship with God, where I can experience God on a first-hand basis. Now, I, I can talk about that. We, we have faith. We believe that. I believe that about God. And I become what? A child of God to enjoy my Father again. All of this is brought about. We read that. Part of it was read even by... Um, by Steve when he read from uh, Romans chapter 5. I, I, I like also the passage that's read in Ephesians when it talks about our conditions. And, and it says, uh, and you were dead in chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. I was violating habitually the boundaries of God, and I was impotent to do anything about it, powerless to do anything about it. That's my condition in which you formerly walked. 
according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among those two, you formerly lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of your flesh and the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's who I was, even as the rest. That's who we are and were. And then those great verse, verse, next two words there, verse 4, but God, he's the initiator. There's nowhere in those first three verses man did anything. He's just stating his condition. God is the one who transforms the condition, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Those are verbs that are passive in nature. It's something that is being done to us. He loved us. He made us alive and uh, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith and raised us up with him. He did it. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. He did it. We didn't. You couldn't do it. He did it. So that, verse 7, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing richness of the grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved. So we become, in his showcase of trophies in heaven, we become that for God. He said, hey, look, I want to know you. You want to know what I did? Here's Mike. That's what I did for him because he was living a selfish, sinful life. And you know, there's times he struggled with me, but my grace prevailed. My truth prevailed. My deliverance prevailed. He's the one. And then he points to every one of us just exactly the same way we become the trophies of his grace. He does it for his glory. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. Uh, I think I was saying that already. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that we may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're back, basic one. We're working with God again, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has made us to walk and work with Him again because of the salvation that is brought to us. God wants us to be wholly lost in Him. No horizontal distractions, lost in him. Here's where I say something that's kind of interesting because we, we don't fully grasp that what God wants in redemption, certainly glory to himself, but what he wants in redemption is a renewed relationship with us. And what he wants to celebrate is our exchange of life that we do with him on a daily basis. He doesn't want us to get lost with the means that he brought that about. You see, now, and specifically what I'm saying, and I love the saying that we sang about the cross, the old rugged cross. But my friends, the old rugged cross is not the end. It's a means towards the end. And the, the end is that I might have a relationship with him. We're going to celebrate communion here in a few minutes. Well, communion is not the end. It's a means towards the end. It's so that we would remember what he's done for us. And what did he do for us? He restored us to intimacy with him. The eminence of God, that he is there, he's available, I can touch him. I can walk with him. Resurrection, as beautiful as it is, we're glad that Jesus Christ proved to be victorious over all sin. But the end result of him being victorious over all sin is to know that he's conquered sin in my life. So what? So that I can have a relationship with him. 
Now, it's too late. You've already missed multiple opportunities to say amen. I mean, do you not grasp the depth of the intimacy that God desires to have in his eminence with us to make himself known to us? That God would do that for me? That he would do that for you? <laughs> Hallelujah. What is that? No, 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 no. You're just playing to the crowd now. Just as Jesus walked with people when he was here on earth, he wishes to do that with us. As Jesus was with people in almost every situation, sickness, sin, failure, death, disappointment, accusations, judgment, separation. You say, well, Mike, um, can God understand where I'm at right now? Does does he, I mean, he's God. He, He doesn't know. He's not sin. He's never had sin in his life. So can, can he understand me? And what I'm going through? Does he understand the temptations that I face? Does he understand the failure? Well, Two verses. We taught these verses on Wednesday with the men's Bible study. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll draw it to its conclusion with this. This is talking about Jesus. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So when I talk about Jesus living life, and you can say, well, it had to be easy for Jesus. He's God. He could just live through life. Man, that's a piece of cake. He suffered. He learned obedience. Now, I'm talking about his, his deity. You know, we already understand in Philippians, he laid aside the use of all of his uh, attributes and uh, didn't set them aside from his life, but the use of those. And he manifested himself in the flesh. And so when he was growing up, we have to assume that, um, as Luke tells us, that um, he grew up. He, he, he knew what it was to face testing. Like any child would, like any t- teenager would. In fact, if you want to know the commentary on that, it was given in the verses before that, in chapter 4. Therefore, verse 14 of Hebrews, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So that already answers the question. Does he understand me? Yes. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's identifying with us in the normal course of our lives. You may be tempted to lie. Jesus knows what the pressure of that is. You may be tempted to lust. Jesus knows what the pressure of that is. He did not sin, nor did he lie, nor did he lust, but he knows what the pressure of that is in his flesh. Like you, he understands that. 
And when it says that he was in all points tested and tested as we are, it means this. I'm walking down this continuum of life, and as I walk down this, as I walk further down this, I'm tested and tempted to fall off the way of God and to move into sin. I'm tempted to lie. I'm tempted to lust. I'm tempted to get lost in drugs. I'm tempted to uh, get lost in my own ego. I'm tempted to, to boast about me. I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to do all of those things. And what he says here is, Jesus walked completely to the end of the full pressures that anyone could ever imagine expressing in one's life, and he never sinned. And I asked then, God, do you understand what I'm going through? What an insult. What arrogance. Of course she understands. And what I love about this is, if I go back to the verse... He said, we do not have a high priest. Now, what is the purpose of a high priest? The high priest was to speak to God on behalf of people. That was a function of the high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested beyond anything we've ever experienced. What does he say? He says something very obvious. Verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of judgment. Oh, oh, the throne of grace. God, you do know what I need, don't you? You do know my struggle. I don't need somebody to tell me what a loser I am or what a failure I am or what sin I may have get involved in. I already know that. The Spirit of God convicts me of that. What I need is to somebody say, there's a way of escape. There's a way of deliverance, there's a way of hope. And he says, I extend to you grace, undeserved blessing, so that you may receive mercy, a withholding of what you really deserve, and find grace to help in time of need. I ask the question of you, does God understand you right now more than you realize, more than you know? He knows the thoughts of your mind right now. I mean... We don't need to define all of that. So when we talk about the transcendence of God, we're talking about a God who is without equal in power and ability. Even if we read about Paul's conclusion of the prayer when he said, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. God is in this thing deeper than you realize. You don't even think or know what to ask. And he's still working it out. God has been with people in the context of death. He's been with people in the context of temptation to lie and deny. He's been with people who were filled with demonic spirits. He was filled, he's been with people who were lost by the deception of materialism. He's been with people that were full of themselves. He's been with people like that. He lived with them. He worked with them. He walked with them. Does he understand? Hmm. Let's not get lost in the forms that do one thing for us. Let's not get lost in the cross as a physical instrument. 
Let's not get lost in the power of the resurrection, which is good, but it leads somewhere. Let's not get lost in communion and, and you know, sh- how should we do this? Should we do it with real wine? or wh- Should the bread be this? Should it be this? Should it be square or shouldn't it be? Should it be pulled apart? Have you lost the meaning of this? It's to draw us in remembrance of God. It's to renew our relationship with Him. It's the beauty of that. Or... And if you want to know how, you say, well, Mike, how do you test a worship service? Not whether they sing songs that I like. Do those songs draw me to God? You tell, how, do you, how do you determine if you like a message, Mike? It's simply this. Does that message draw me to God? Why do you like the ambiance? It doesn't matter to me if it, if it draws me to God. The whole objective of God in his redemptive purpose, and we can, and you know, I've had, I've sat around with great minds that think they're greater than they really are, and discussing things that they don't know anything about, to impress people they don't even like. That's the end of that now. And they, and they want to talk about all these theological nuances, and I said, what I really want to know about you right now is, tell me what your relationship with God is. Do you know his forgiveness? Do you know his cleansing? Do you know his renewal power? Do you know his invitation to say to Peter when he had failed him so miserably, Peter, go feed my sheep. Walk with me. Do you love me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could talk about your failure, but that's done. You cried out in confession to me. That's done. We don't have to talk about that. God. God wants you. In a relationship more than anybody in the whole world. You know, maybe we could become like the little boy who came in and he said, Mom, I know God's name. You do? Yeah. What is it? It's Andy. Andy? Why do you say Andy? We sang about it last Sunday. Andy walks with me. Andy talks with me. Andy tells me. Now, that's a moaner. Don't laugh at that. That's a moaner. But here's the thing. God does want to know us on a personal basis. And he does want to walk with us. And he does want to talk with us.